1: Hello, I'm Clive Anderson. Welcome to My Seven Wonders. In ancient times, the most impressive monuments and superstructures, such as the Great Pyramid of Giza or the fabulous Hanging Gardens of Babylon, were lauded, listed and visited as wonders of the world. And like seas, days of the week and deadly sins, there were always seven of them. Later, Magnificent Sevens celebrated more recent wonders, including the Taj Mahal, or natural phenomena, such as the Grand Canyon or the Great Barrier Reef. But what are the seven wonders you would put on your personal list? Well, that's the question I ask my guests in this podcast, and the guest I'm asking today is the journalist and broadcaster John Sargent, whose television career included several years as the chief political correspondent of the BBC and political editor of ITN. Though in more recent times, he's probably better known for cutting something of a dash on Strictly Come Dancing, as well as presenting a variety of TV series well away from the cut and thrust of party politics. Now John, uh, you studied PPE philosophy, politics, and economics at Oxford, uh, the classic first step on the way to becoming um, an MP or even pm. Um, did you ever think that, that politics was what you were going to go into rather than talking about other people 's politics?
2: No, I thought I did. I mean, but I was very keen to be a reporter. yeah, I wanted to go on adventures, I wanted to race around the world, meet interesting people. I didn't want to be stuck at Westminster, so when it was first suggested that I might go to Westminster, I said, well, I suppose if I had some sort of injury... (laughs) <laughs> you know, and they were horrified by that. I mean, they really thought, right, we'll screw this guy. All right. we'll, he'll never be allowed to. So when I decided I did want to go to Westminster, lots of obstacles were put in my way, but so, I got there in the end.
1: So you would have liked to have been like a war reporter or a foreign I was a war reporter. Yeah.
2: I was a war reporter. I, I've a, I mean, I was for 10 years, I was a general reporter. And in that time, I covered, what, five wars of different sorts, mm. went to 25 countries did all kinds of stories from you know appearing at the old Bailey to report on murders yeah. to be at Wimbledon to talk about this kind of beyond borg. It seemed to be people getting excited about him. Yeah. So all these things I did in ten years, but then eventually I managed to settle down at Westminster for twenty years. So I was thirty years on the staff in all.
1: Yeah. And do you think you were at least as influential, uh, you know, reporting these matters as you
2: would have been if you'd been say a, a backbench MP? I think what I might have done with John Cole, who was the political editor, I think we introduced a different kind of reporting from Westminster, certainly not working from a script the whole time, which they used to, yeah, and certainly trying to say it 's a bit more complicated than on the one hand, this and on the one hand that, yeah, and that there are things you can say about politics which aren 't party political but which are based upon your experience and knowledge. so I think both of us, John obviously to a much more a greater extent than I did broke that and, and made a change yeah. there. And I think that was the influence we did have.
1: Because I once asked this sort of question to Robin Day, Sir Robin Day, who had stood, st- stood for Parliament, I think a couple of times and didn't get in. And then he was this magnificent uh, interrogator on the television. And I said, oh, that's naively, well, I, you know, you're you kind of are in a better place being the interrogator, much more important in people's lives, that you were there holding everyone to account. But he said, oh, no, no, I... Uh, reporting on it is one thing i would much rather have actually been there and he stood as a i think a liberal so i am not quite sure what influence he might have had even if he'd been let's say leader of the liberal party in the 1970s or 60s uh, you know a pretty uh, pretty ineffectual position to be but you know he but he was absolutely certain that uh, it was it was a second best thing for him but that's not not for you
2: well no i mean i think there's also a difference between the people who were stuck in studios i used to be a presenter on Radio 4. I even presented the Today programme for three months. But but most of my time I was a reporter yeah. and enjoying it and sit, meeting all these people, whereas those stuck in Newsnight studios and other things, they never get out. They, they don't get to Westminster, let alone <laughs> anywhere else. <laughs> so a, they don't it, – it's yeah. a very different – they've got to do a very skilled job. I'm not, I'm not yeah. denigrating them. But it's not the same as being there, being with Margaret Thatcher in Moscow, yeah. being with Margaret Thatcher in Paris – yeah. You know these are great moments which I treasured yes
1: I might well come on to those moments but just one other question about your early years in in this regard you were also at, at Oxford a bit of a comedian a performer you worked uh, in a review with Alan Bennett so that's another path you might have gone down and obviously you've got a you've obviously got a sense of humor but might you have been well, like an Alan Bennett
2: a, a comedian or a writer or a storyteller?
1: <laughs> Well, um, I
2: had the choice at the end of my time at Oxford, which I spent either making jokes or writing jokes or being serious, and I've <laughs> tried <laughs> to keep that balance ever since. Um, I, did, I got a job with Reuters, all lined up, and I then went to Edinburgh to the festival mm. and appeared in the Oxford Review, and one night Alan Bennett was there. Yeah. And the next morning he collected us all together and suddenly turned to me in front of all these people desperate to get into show business mm. and said, would you like to be in my television comedy series yeah and there's an awful hush um and i said well i'm not sure about that because i've got this job lined up Mm. so i did do that and we had a fantastically successful run in his only sketch show on television called on the margin and it was wonderful and marvelous but i again had to decide look what am i going to do and i wanted to be a journalist and so i went to work on the liverpool echo as a reporter so you dashed not sure you've quite... You've, it's
1: a very full answer, but I haven't quite answered the essence of my question, which is, you know, do you think you could have
2: had a, a career taking that first step in, into comedy? Yeah, think? I could have had a career. I don't think i had been very good at it. I was, certainly wasn't as funny as Alan. I mean, God, that was an example of... Well, that's a high don't, bar. Don't, <laughs> <laughs> don't try and go this way. Yeah. So from that point of view, my brother was a, an actor and hadn't been very successful as an actor. So I had plenty of warnings of, you know, be careful... OK, well, let's, let's go on to your first wonder, which uh, links to that uh, reasonably well. What is the first wonder? The first wonder is the BBC. Now, this isn't <laughs> like the Hang Gardens of Babylon or, or one of the famous ancient wonders of the world, but it is a wonder, and it was certainly a wonder to me. It gave me yeah. a fantastic career. So there's a personal element. You say my personal wonders. Yeah. So I'm allowed to choose eccentrically the yeah. BBC with all its <laughs> manifold faults, but with all its magnificent strengths. And, and you're, you've put it in terms of, it gave a career to you,
1: but are you appreciating the BBC as an employee of it or as a viewer or listener um, or all of those?
2: I think it's all of them. No, I mean, I think that, you know, I, I very much wanted to work in all the departments of the BBC. I put that on my first application form. They turned me down immediately. You know, we can't have people just wanting to work for the BBC. Yeah, but, uh, you know, we must have people obsessed by some aspect oh, right. of the work. Oh, it's like applying for
1: university these you know, days. You to have to say that the, the only it, thing you've yeah. ever wanted to study was economics with
2: accounts. And so, that's it. so if I would said I want to be a makeup artist, they'd have perhaps been a bit surprised in those days. Yeah. Um, but they would have be been more interested in that than me saying, I just want to work anyway, I want to work you know, <laughs> for the BBC. Yeah, but it, it, it gave me lots of opportunities, not just to be funny later on, um, and my first job was with the Alan Bennett uh, series, um, but to go to wars and to meet people, to go to extraordinary places, um, and to work in almost every single department of the BBC. So so at the end of my 30 years, I was jolly pleased uh, to have done my 30 years, and the my manager said to me, this will interest you, and he passed a the table a brown envelope mm. and he said this will interest you and so I said oh yes I opened it up and it was the uh reference that Alan Bennett had given me right. 30 years before okay and so I said wow <laughs> I, 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 that's wonderful can I have this yeah. and they said no John it's a copy <laughs> <laughs> It's just a copy. So somewhere in the archive is the real one. And what does it say? And it just says that I'm fun and, and that I I'm, would be better at reporting than anyone that Alan heard normally on the radio reporting um, and that uh, I should definitely be employed. So
1: doing a, a sketch show at Edinburgh and getting in with Alan Bennett in that
2: sense uh, did help you? Perhaps? It was peculiar. Mm. And I was a bit embarrassed about the whole thing. I mean, I i was, and I'd, that's why I'd worked so seriously in Liverpool as a... As a journalist trainee, but no, the BBC were quite ready to think, "Oh, there's something about this bloke, mm. you know." He's he, and, and of course, what they're really after, and and this is correct, is that most of the people that work um, as television reporters um, have had some sort of dramatic experience, that as amateurs and various things, mm. because you've got to have dramatic presence, you've got to be able to stand up on a stage and people either want to look at you or can't help but look at you. Mm. In my case, it was can't help but look <laughs> at you. Uh, so that that you know, you need that. If you've got nothing about you, yeah. if you're just simply a bloke reciting stuff. Yes. With no with no flair, you're not going to make it as a BBC correspondent. You you did mention in passing there there was that
1: very dramatic moment uh, with Margaret Thatcher where the the point of time when she was close to being well resigning or losing losing office and uh, talk us through that again. You, you were trying to grab an interview with
2: Yeah, her. no, the thing, it got, I had to go back just one step further. I went to Moscow with her when she was meeting... Gorbachev in Moscow for the first time, mm-hmm. and um, we were. It was on an RAF plane, so the food was much better. Wonderful food, yeah. You know, with vintage wines and the whole thing. I'm
1: not sure that follows in an ordinary mind. Because no, because it, it's an RAF plane, you get better food. It. Fair it enough. Does, anyway, yeah.
2: VIP RAF yeah. flight, mm. much better than plastic jobs. Anyway, yeah. So I'm sitting down to my meal, um, and we're told by Lingham that she's not going to come down and see you for a while, so you can get on with your food. It's very charming. He was you know, that way. rather was, irascible press press secretary. Oh, yeah. So I started this wonderful meal and Margaret Thatcher appeared at my side. Mm. So I stood up and all the food and what have you went on the floor. Mm. And Margaret Thatcher, typical her, rushed forward, threw herself onto the ground and turned to me and said, you stay where you are. (laughs) I'll sort this out. (laughs) Well, now, that's typical her. She had no sense of humor, (laughs) but she could be playful. Yes, But it also meant from then on she knew exactly who I was. I was yeah. the guy that made a fool of himself. He was the,
1: the idiot who couldn't... Uh, I was idiot from
2: the BBC. Yes, yes. So when we were outside the embassy... And this is in Brussels? This is, is Brussels? 1990 in yeah. Paris Embassy, Paris, British yeah. Embassy in Paris. Sorry, yeah. She had heard that she had not done well enough in the ballot of uh, MPs against mm. Michael Heseltine yeah. to avoid a second ballot. Yeah. So we knew she was in dead trouble. He was damaged. And I thought that she's not going to come out and talk now. She'll be consulting and all that kind of thing. And I, someone from Number 10 said, that's it. So when the newsreader, Peter Sissons, turned to me and said, John, well, what's the reaction been to this result <laughs> you know, in Paris? I then rambled on saying yeah. oh, she won't be coming out. Yeah. And then someone jumped up in front of me and I thought, that's a bit odd. What's going on? Yeah. And I longed to look behind. I looked behind. And of course, there was Margaret Thatcher <laughs> and Burningham pushing their way past me. Burningham hit me yeah. because he wanted to get her past me so she would talk to all the reporters yes. behind the crash barriers. But they uh, were denied that. I got my BBC scoop. So it was yeah. the best moment in my career because she then commented on the results. Two days later, she resigned. Yeah. So uh, it made my career. And it wrecked hers. <laughs> well, at least you didn't spill any food on
1: air. So you, yes. were, you were you're on top of the... Well, look, but you've, you're quite rightly talking about your, you know. Yeah. big moments in your career and the BBC's part of that mm. but people listening to this uh, some of them will go yes the BBC's a fine institution but other people will be going no it's finished it's useless it's it's, finished, it's, it's, a, awful. it's useless we don't want to pay 150 or so quid for, it, weird, for tax. yeah all mm. that kind of thing so uh, do you think it's got a future as as it's it's 100 years old 100 uh, years uh, old and yeah. but has it got another 100 years has it got another 10
2: years no but they, they <laughs> whenever they think of either abolishing it or changing the system they think yeah well, We're sort of stuck with this And everybody really, I think most people would accept anyway That life in Britain is much better with the BBC than without it So it's all very well saying Oh, I I hate them, they're biased and it's all ghastly Why don't they put me on? Various other questions that people (laughs) raise Um, In practice though, it has been such an enormous force for good With all its failings Mm. and all its idiosyncrasies And its terrible management um, it has, in fact, produced some wonderful, wonderful programmes, and now it's produced a demigod, David Attenborough. And the other thing
1: that may spell its doom is the just the technological advances. Mm. I know there have been different ones. ITV came along, sure. multi channels came along, but now, in terms of you know drama, there you know there's Netflix producing stuff, there's Apple, all, all sorts of
2: uh, things. But not with the range. Curiously enough, what what all this has shown is that the BBC is actually quite good value for money. I mean, mm. nobody says that. Yeah. But the amount of people who spend on these streaming things yes. is incredible. And the BBC, of course, has the range. They're all the little local radio stations, all the language services, all the orchestras, five orchestras. Yeah. And when people began to think a bit about that, they think, well, it would be such a chunk out of our lives. Yeah. If you just make it a subscription service, you've got to. St- people hate new taxes. It's amazing what old taxes they'll put up with. And from that point of view, isn't it extraordinary the license fee goes on the poll tax? Well,
1: what before we leave the BBC, just just as a suggestion that I've made myself many times and got nowhere with, maybe it's the license fee itself which is the problem. It, it, it's a government funded. Institution, and that it's a way of kind of disguising that you have this special license fee, which was appropriate when you were buying into it. But you could say it's just going to be provided out of general taxation, then people wouldn't be obsessed at the moment. People don't say, Why am I paying? Fifty pounds every year for libraries that I don't use, or ten pounds, or what have we? Done? No one's got any idea how much we spend on sure, most things. But, but you could cha- make that change.
2: You could, but that's true about all sorts of things: lotteries and all sorts mm. of odd ways people have of thinking they're going to be in luck and make money or not make money. People's attitude to money and paying. No, but, things for is, some, is odd. It, but for some people, but
1: for some people, one hundred and fifty or is a, a lot of money. To other people, they would they don't notice
2: it, and they wouldn't notice it if it was coming out of their. Income tax. Sure, but you then uh, essentially you're talking about what do most people want out of it all, and most people are getting an enormous amount out of the BBC, and they know it. All right, so
1: that's your first wonder of the world. That's my wonder. The British British Broadcasting
2: Corporation. Exactly. (laughs) And my role in it. (laughs) A
1: spontaneous (laughs) round of applause for one of the most popular leaders this country's
2: ever had. I'm (laughs) sure you agree. So so Margaret Thatcher. um, Why? Yeah. <laughs> well, everyone's got their reasons. My reasons are very personal. Yes. Now, there are times when I'm at work and yeah. people get in the way, they shout at you, they wave behind you when you're doing pieces to camera, that sort oh. of thing. mm mm-hmm. So I've got a particular problem with Margaret Thatcher because I'm often working and she was often, for one reason or another, getting in the way and causing me difficulties.
1: I, there is a particular example. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you remember it. No. Um, <laughs> Uh, but your second wonder is
2: perhaps a more uh, more traditional wonder. Yes, more traditional wonder. I'm going to choose the Grand Canyon. Mm. Now, the point about the, these sorts of famous wonders, if you like, is it depends very much on your mood. Yes. Now, when I was in my gap year, I went to America, arriving with £30 and working as an accountant, would you believe it, in a concrete plant. But anyway... Um, Oh, no, well, I wouldn't believe se- any of that. What? I was there yeah. for seven months yes. and had a fantastic series of adventures, which ended up with me being present in the crowd when Martin Luther King made his Eye of a Dream speech. But that right. was right at the end of the seven months. Okay. Uh, before that, I went all over America with two other students that I met, um, and we went to Arizona. But before that, we'd been through the, the horrible apartheid of the southern states, the tensions over race, because this was in 1963. It was a very political moment. But then we got to Arizona and we arrived at the Grand Canyon. Now, I have to say, all this politics whirring around in my head, as it has done for the whole of my life almost, yes. to see the Grand Canyon just took my breath away. And I, I look back on I think, God, that is, when you're talking about billions of years and talking about a little river that goes through yes. a plateau and then after 50 million years or something, mm. it then creates this enormous canyon, which is nearly 300 miles long, nearly 20 miles wide and more than a mile deep.
1: Yeah.
2: If that takes you away from thinking about race and politics yeah. and, and all the rest of it, you just think, oh, my goodness me what a fantastic sight and i was 19 years old and i just thought this is Talk yeah. about grand this is a wonder a wonder of the world so it is well it certainly is a wonder of the world
1: but it is intertwined clearly from what you're saying with the age you were um the early 60s in america was a very different place from now very different from britain so it was more it was more of a journey to yeah, go from, from from here to there th- in those you, days yeah and
2: can you imagine I, my first hamburger you know yeah. my first pizza yes you know, I mean, it, it, so those sorts of things. You thought, God, what an extraordinary place. The whole so place was a wonder of the world in that sense. So you're wrapped up, and then this amazing political tension yeah. that's going on, and then suddenly the Grand Canyon, and you know, oh, oh, it's completely different. Hurray, yeah. You know, the, the, the elation, and the, and then you go down to the Grand Canyon. It took me hours, and my companions too. We got about a third of the way down. But How are you doing that? You walking, walking, driving, walking, uh, walking yeah. down. Yeah. And um, I was interested to see one of the very early expeditions down there in the 18th century or something. They only got a third of the way down. Yeah. So anyway, we got about a third of the way down. We then went back up, and I remember drinking pints and pints and pints of water. Yeah. You know, and you just thought, what? I I can still feel it now. I can feel the water. I can still feel the the excitement, the colors of the the Grand Canyon. There were funny ochres and all sorts of oranges and sort of strange browns and... Mm. And there's, there's great five different climatic zones or something. Yes,
1: it's fantastic. Well, odd enough, we don't get many duplications of wonders in the as ones I've done so far of these, a couple of dozen. But uh, Trevor McDonald, who very yes. much uh, Sir Trevor McDonald, who works in your area, in that yes. he chose the Grand Canyon as well. So there must be something about um, news hounds of a of a certain vintage, if I may put it like that, yeah. who are uh, struck by the the Grand
2: Canyon. I think we just, you know, as we, we, the, the comparison is probably right, a probably a fair comparison. We get stuck into so much detail to do with men and politics mm. and women and how things are and issues and all that and taxation mm. to suddenly find this sort of mind-blowing experience which knocks us completely into a different world. Yes. That's one of the things about, it's, it's funny, these wonders of the world, it's really almost wonders out of this world. Yeah. you know That they're, sort of, they're, they're not part of your ordinary experience.
1: But you, you, you mentioned there that part of this trip or this time in America got you to be there when Martin Luther King was making uh, his very famous speech. So you, c- could you tell me about that?
2: Well, I, I, I mean, I was with a family who were frankly racist from the South. And they yeah. said, are you going into, uh, are you going downtown? And I said, I was going downtown, um, but they didn't say what for. And I knew the March on Washington was taking place. And there were a quarter of a million people there. Hmm. and there was speech after speech, and there was singing, and Mahalia Jackson, all sorts of people were going on about things. Uh, most people there black. Um, and suddenly, speaker number 17 or something stood up. A young bloke, 34 years hmm. old, I didn't know who he was, but I knew about, he was a Baptist preacher, I knew that, yeah. and my father had been a preacher, so I, I, you know, I knew quite a bit about how do you make the occasion work. I didn't know that someone said to him, go on, Martin, give them the eye of a dream. Yeah, because it a speech he'd made before, hadn't it? Yeah, speeches he'd made before. So someone said, go on, give them the eye of a dream line. Mm. And he then launched into it. And, of course, it was just electric. Oh, goodness me. Yeah. And you did you did feel the hairs go out on the back of your neck and, and you thought there was something very... And also what you don't get from the black and white newsreels of the time is you don't get this extraordinary sense of it being like a like a Baptist church there are a quarter million people yeah. there in front of the Lincoln Memorial but they're all shouting and yeah. he's, he's, he's talking about places they know and they're saying oh yeah yeah and that, so all that's going on between the crowd and the preacher and that's one of the many reasons why we're all electrified by it
1: yeah so you were what in the crowd or standing mm. back or how far away a, from him a, were you
2: I should think I was a, I was a few hundred yards yeah. from him and I was on one side of uh, of the one side of the, that great, what is it, that, that extraordinary lake in front of Congress. Right. Um, and so I know where I was. So whenever the news <laughs> will come on, I look to see if I can be seen. Yeah. And someone very kindly, uh, I got to know someone who did colorization and they, they've they given me a, a picture of the crowd colorized <laughs> and I still can't see. My you can't brother. pick yourself
1: up. <laughs> So you might have been a sort of red-faced from all your exactly. journeying around the Grand Canyon. At <laughs> exactly. But this is before you were a reporter, yeah. perhaps before even at university. Uh, it's a paradox. Okay. Yeah. But, of course, what drove me
2: there is the typical reporter's instinct. I wanted to be there for the story. Yes. I didn't know it was going to be that big. Yeah. Um, but I thought, well, this is quite a moment.
1: But you knew this was the, the speech to, to, I know, to remember. Afterwards, of
2: course, I knew, yes. It's, and then, curiously, the speech got more, much more famous once you'd been killed. Yes. So it's one of those curiosities about.
1: It. When you went back to the racist family you were staying with, oh, yeah. did you say, I, you know, I went along, and there's a huge no, crowd, this fantastic speech? I made from
2: absolutely this. no comment on it. And did they, were they not interested? No, to, they, they were very interested, yeah. um, and they were on the edge of their seats as to what had gone on and so on, but we yeah. did not discuss it. All right. No, it so it that, sounds,
1: sounds like a very memorable trip for all sorts of reasons. It was very memorable. Yeah. All right. Well, that's In a very happy period. Yes, happy Perhaps period in your life. Happiest period of my life. Yes, happy days when you're 19, you're travelling abroad, you've seen sights. And you've got into Oxford. so And
2: you've got into Oxford. <laughs> so you, you don't need to worry about that. You know, <laughs> your, your future to that extent is just, oh yeah, oh, what yeah. a time, what a time. I have a dream. <laughs> my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the colour of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. Let's go on to your third wonder, though, if we may. Right, my third wonder is English churches. Now, that may sound rather serious, but um, it's not. It's places and people and all sorts of associations that I have And I usually go with my wife, and we go to look round church—a church crawl. Some people call it about pub crawls, but you go church crawl. And to do that properly, you need to have one of the Pevsner volumes. Right. These are the Buildings of England. Yeah. Now often it's full of jargon, and I'll read you one of the descriptions. Mm -hmm. It's the only bit of notes I've got, so I'm very very good of you to come armed with notes. The village is unforgettable. Its thatched ironstone cottages engulfed in gardens in a valley encircled by trees. The Norman church was rebuilt in the 13th century. Opposite the churchyard entrance is the plain stone vicarage, mostly of 1781, with a shabby porch. am not sure I like the shabby porch, yeah. because, of course, that was my our home. That's where I was brought up as a child, and my father was the vicar of Great Tew.
1: Right now, that's so an extraordinary
2: village. I mean, from that description, but it's it's known to be it's an unusual village, isn't it? It is an unusual village, and it's got genuine thatch cottages, and it's lovely. And I think that, oh, I think that the Beckhams and various people now have moved into that area. Yes, I don't know. they probably brought down the whole tone of it. But when I was there, <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> it was a lovely. Or was it
1: owned by a sort of local it was, lord of the manor? It or was. It yeah. was, and
2: he. Th- it was then taken over by his 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 estate manager. Um, but no, for me it was uh, there were very few cars, mm. and it was it, it was absolutely idyllic. And I went to the local school, so there were thirty kids. We had a, a school teacher, and we were there for six years. So we were spread up. We were we were d- divided into groups of five. So it was a group of five. She yeah. talked to us. Say, I'm talking to you now. Yes. And then you. Your next year group would be alongside that, alongside that, in one schoolroom. Right, a proper village school. And she was in charge, and she yeah. was a magnificent woman. She lived to more than a hundred. Yeah. Um. But that's how I was taught from the age of the age of five to the age of eleven, when I got the eleven plus, and right. other things happened to
1: me. And then you went off to
2: a, a, a grander school after that. Huh? I did because my father, um, was as well as being the vicar, taught at uh, actually grander. I went to a, a, a grim public school. I went, perhaps, better not name it. It's too unhappy for them. They were they were dreadful, and I was the youngest boy in the school for two years. All right, so that didn't help. Yeah. Um, then my father was sacked from that and sacked from his position at Great Two by a dreadful woman who said he wasn't paying enough attention to the parish. Right. So he then went from there to a, a, f- a famous school now Millfield. Yes. Um, and the headmaster said, "Would well, you got any sons if they're bright enough and come here?" And so for a hundred pounds a year I went to the most expensive school in England at the time, Millfield in Somerset.
1: Thanks thanks to your father being a, a teacher to there. My father yes, being and the, the ups teach. and downs of his career. Mm. Um so did that uh, change you, do you think, going in a village school with, you know, just a few people, you might have come out as emerged as something different from somebody who goes to uh, albeit your father didn't have to pay so much, still a very grand school to go to.
2: Yeah, no, I, I, it was difficult, but I, I was good at passing exams, and mm. uh, that's why I was there. Yes. And there were lots of people there who were good at sport. Yeah. Um, they sent, I think, in the last Olympics, there were 11 Millfield pupils <laughs> yes. competing. Now, so they're still an amazing sporting school, and they were then. Um, and I was one of a small group of people whose job it was to pass exams, All which Right, I did. And I studied, would you believe it, I mean, for four years, the last four years, maths, physics were my only subjects pretty well. Maths and physics, applied maths, pure maths and physics. Right. And I took that in at A-level three times, and at S-level, yeah. getting slowly worse marks. <laughs> <laughs> but it can't be too bad
1: because you got to Oxford in I did. due course. No, you didn't I knew, stick I with a, physics or maths. I knew so. an
2: awful lot of maths and physics.
1: Yes, but, uh, but as I say, you did uh, earlier... You did uh, philosophy, politics, and yeah. economics, which is a, obviously a bit of maths and economics, but for the rest, bit of it, maths.
2: it's more—I um, well, don't
1: know—analysis, yeah. opinions, use of language rather than numbers.
2: Yeah, but also with all those things, the science things, I think what it gave me was the the, the, the capacity, anyway, to be detached. Mm. If you're—if you—you know—if you're a political correspondent, you're outside Number Ten. What are you meant to say? Well, the main thing is to clear the noise away from yeah. your head. Of all yeah. the other things you might say, okay. and come out with something quite simple which can be understood. Yeah.
1: So, that, but going back to the churches, you you mm. you do church calls, but do you would you take in St Paul's Cathedral, you know, grand places oh, like that, well, or do you only really like village churches
2: with yeah, you know, these the vi- well, Norman the village, towers and things? As the village churches, you just feel particularly now um, that they they've so suffered from well, they've suffered from the pandemic, but they suffer because people close them now. Yeah, and I just you just sort of feel oh, that really is in decline. Yeah, and when I said to Alan Bennett that I might not join him in his in the television comedy series, he said, "Oh, why not?" Mm. And I said, "My father would be very cross." And he said, um, "Oh, why is that?" And I said, "Well, because of the the sermon sketch in Beyond the Fringe that Alan was famous for." Yeah, and I said, "My father um, was a clergyman, and he regards you as personally responsible for the decline of the Church of England." And so Alan said, "Oh dear! Well, what does your mother think?" <laughs> <laughs> so, so I mean, yeah. it all sort of fits in with with a feeling very much of you know my dad and churches and all right l- life in Great Too. So for me, it's not just sort of oh let's go around and fit, find out what's going mm. on. It's it's reliving a sort of a large chunk of my mental life, which is of course forever in Great Too and a sort of idyllic part of your childhood. Yeah. yeah. And are you
1: religious? Are you there to, <laughs> no, to worship God as well?
2: No, unfortunately, no, no. <laughs> I worship the buildings. Don't worship God, I'm afraid. I ought to, but I, uh, no, that just went. I felt I'd done enough of that by the time I was yeah. uh, 30. I thought, you know, going to church twice on a Sunday and I thought, it's quite enough now. But anyway, it doesn't stop you going
1: to the churches. To, no, and, it, to... and
2: marvelling in them and encouraging other people to go.
1: Yeah, and the, so it's the smell of them, the feel of them, the mm-hmm. look of them, and the history of them. Are, are, would you say you're very... In that sense, very much in love with sort of the Englishness of yes. of uh, of your life, or yes, what, and, yeah. you know,
2: and and you know, it's from that point of view. Is it? I don't know. Is it another awful aspect of growing old? You get more patriotic, don't you? you yes. Get more sort of this is my area, this is my country, and I love it. All right, sort of thing.
1: Well, that may lead us to your next wonder. Then, so what's what's your fourth wonder? <laughs>
2: the next wonder very much does fit that, and of course, it fits both with my childhood dreams and excitements and with my uh, you know, ability to work for in documentary films because I've chosen the Spitfire. Yes, and that's because, well, oh, why is it? <laughs> it's because it's just one of those crazy things which ought ought to frighten you. And if I've had a Spitfire part of the filming, flying right over my head at four hundred miles an hour, mm. and it can be looked terrifying. Yeah, and then when it it goes up in the sky, it sort of sighs its way up in the sky, you think, oh, it's so beautiful, yeah, and of course, for lots of people it's it's all of those things and and it's part of the second world war story. I was born in nineteen forty four at the end of the war, but i was when I was young, all these Memoirs were coming out about pilots, and yeah. we were making these models of Spitfires. So I you must have it, had an Airfix kit of a of a, well, yes, a Spitfire. Well, a Spitfire craft, yeah. not an Airfix, oh, oh, right. because we actually made them in Borsa and So and, sorry, and, I don't and, want to lower like, the tone. And you? paper with dope on it. Yeah, no, but it, it all, all that you see is pretty powerful imagery. Mm. And to then find, as I then did, that how old was I? I don't know. I was not not that long ago. Uh, I was allowed to fly a Spitfire. In because I had yeah. learned to fly gliders and and powered planes, got a private a private pilot's license when I was a teenager, right? With the RAF, all paid for by well, the RAF, yeah. And um, so when I was then making programs later on, in recent years, allowed to make programs um, to do a, a Spitfire program, and then being allowed to fly it. And what was it like pilot, to fly? Well, it was just absolutely, it was just wonderful. Mm. Because they uh, a Spitfire, so one of the Spitfire pilots once described it as being like a body armor that you put round you. Yeah, you're so tight within it. Well, I was—I um, have an awkward question I want to ask about that. Uh, um, then I was too
1: fat. I, I didn't want to put it like that. I was just saying, if, because of the age you are, and. Presumably, most uh, Spitfire pilots would have been—I don't know—in their early twenties, and and everybody, everybody's a bit slimmer. Well, most people are a bit slimmer in their twenties, Yes, and But
2: I—I I it was this still you could still get in, in and out. And no, I think that no, the, the idea that uh, no, no, fatism. I—I I, I have to admit, all the all the ones I met of the people who were pilots in the Second World War. They are remarkably trim, even the old ones of nineties. Yes. You know, the very old ones. Yeah. Um, so that is, a, you're quite right. There's a, yeah. a horrible point to make, though. Well, it? I'll
1: tell you why it came to mind, because I, I thought of an idea for a television programme too late, for all sorts of reasons too late, but I don't think I ever could have had it on time because of when I started to do television. But to do a programme called What Did You Do in the War, Daddy?, and there could be a whole variety of things. But one of those could be if your father had flown... My father happened to fly in the RAF, not in Spitfires as it happened, but but uh, just the idea of me as a bit older, uh, or him much older, obviously clambering in and out of, in his case, Wellingtons. But it could be done with, you know, Wellington mm. aircraft. Um, it could be done with a Spitfire to see, well, what, what's, what was it like? You know, And yes. you, you've, in a sense, done that but, aspect yeah. of the programme by, by no. flying in a Spitfire.
2: And I, there was a copa. I've I said twenty-seven-year-old, but he just said you have control. because yes. he knew I he knew, yeah. knew the basics of flying, um, but it it was oh, it was a, a terrific a, a mm. terrific thing to do, and I, I can see that I once had a, a plan once to rebuild Spitfires three D printing. You think? Well, look, we've got all the all the right m- charts and maps yeah. and bits and pieces. Sure, we could rebuild a Spitfire and make it exactly right. Yeah, and I was talking to an engineer about this, and he said, "Hmm, yes, it's. I uh, it would work. You know, you could do that, but um, I tell you what, it wouldn't sound the same. Yeah. And of course, that's the key Part to it. Of it those yeah. Merlin to yeah. get those iron, cast iron engines. Yes, Merlin engines. The noise of that's what people like so much. So, yes, you could build a three D with a three D printing."
1: Well, it if, sound right. if you were, um, uh, let's say, 20 years older, uh, you you almost certainly would have been a, yes, a participant okay. in the war. There's a bit of you that thinks... You, you you I mean, it seems a weird thing to say about a war, but you'd miss the excitement of being, participating in what has turned out to be a very important
2: war to have fought and won. Yes, no, I very much felt that. I was extremely annoyed to have missed it and, um, you know, almost sort of expressed it in those terms. And, yeah. And long for some of these aircraft because we lived near an airfield um, and you could, they were training planes. I thought, why can't one of them crash at least and I could then run across and <laughs> and look at all the instruments? And yes, now, I was obsessed by aircraft oh, right. um, so it was a it, when i'm choosing the spitfire it's just one yeah. of many
1: really but uh, but it's so the, the war in that sense loomed large in your.
2: Yes, Growing so, up, yes, and when yeah. I, I recently, I sometimes write travel pieces for the Daily Mail, and they agreed to send me to Colditz, and which was just a dream. You know? Yeah, I mean for me that was just perfect. Yeah, to see the room where Douglas Bader was kept. Yes, and where he would be up two flights of stairs, so he'd be carried up by one of the one of the junior oh. um, characters in cold they'd carry Douglas Barter up the stairs. All that stuff to me is yes. it's 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 meat to veg and it's just perfect food. Let's go on to your next wonder, if we may. Right, the next wonder it are British canals and waterways. Now, in a way, that's a sort of a similar idea of how can you, you know, rid your mind of all this politics and junk that you normally get on, you know, confused with. You're stuck at home. How do you get to grips with the British countryside? Well, so I, it's the same sort of idea as the churches. Well, just go along the canals and waterways.
1: Well, we are, in a sense, doing a, a review of some of your old TV, or not your old, but your TV successes yeah. uh, with, with the Spitfire. Now you've gone on to uh, British canals and waterways. So uh, as people may have seen you... Um, barging around Britain. Barging around Britain, going slowly, as is the way of uh, canal travel, uh, on, the, on, the, on a barge, and... Um, does that mean you were always very interested in canals and somebody spotted this and said, we'll get you to do that programme? Or has your interest been sparked by the fact that a TV company wanted to put
2: you on a barge and you, you
1: took to it once you got there? Yeah,
2: no, I mean, i tell you what I was always keen on, messing about in boats. So mm. any kind of boat, including sailing, I'd always go sailing over the summer with my brother, was very much part of my life, yeah. and taking my children to the Lake District and, Having the whole Arthur Ransom experience. So, from that point of view, I was very wedded to sort of the waterways and rivers aspect and the messing about in boats aspect. Yes. Um, and when I was asked, would I do this program about canals? And and of course, they were worried about the title. And that people were saying, I oh, know experts will call them narrow boats. You see, you can't yeah. have barges. They're not barges, they're yeah. narrow boats. So I thought, oh, yeah, narrowboats round Britain. That'll be interesting. Yeah. <laughs> what a great title. So I managed to get them to agree to barging round Britain. I also wanted the idea that I was barging round
1: Britain. I okay. A, a,
2: a sort of, yeah. I was not a, a slim, narrowboat. <laughs> <laughs> cruising quietly the waters, I was barging. But I
1: mean, so messing around in boats on a lake or the sea is full of excitements and the wind picking mm-hmm. up and and capsizing and driving. Whereas on a canal, you know where you're going, you know you're not going to get there very quickly because
2: there'll be locks in between. And yeah. the, uh, but the it, curious thing is that you know you you if you're on a, a, a narrow boat um, and you're going four miles an hour and you pass a road full of speeding cars, yeah you immediately think, actually, I'm in a better position. Yes. And it's one of those curious sort of aspects of the mode of travel. If you like it, the slowness of it is not so important because you're then, you have to, you're forced to concentrate on all sorts of other things, the lie of the land, Mm. whether or not the, where is the water level? Because, of course, if if a canal is above the water level, it may dry out in the summer yeah so the whole way it's built and the way that the you're then looking at the land because you're thinking, Ah, so if they were building this now, how would they do it and mm. where why did it have to go like that and wh- and why didn't they just put in lots of locks and go over mountains? Why did they go through tunnels? yeah all those sorts of things. all those things come to mind, and it also just means that you're you're not racing about. Being neurotic, which you normally are. Yeah. And that's similar on a boat. You've got so many things to do on a sailing boat that it puts other thoughts aside. I think that's the key to it. That's key yeah. to all relaxation, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Not yes. a, not obsessing with things that you're worried about daily, things have I done yeah. this in time. I still dream about oh, missing stories and yeah. Um, arriving completely unbriefed on some yeah. news story, so that's still in my that's yeah. still in my dream nightmares. You know. So, do you still do you miss not being on the day to day reporting? I slog? only miss it when I'm watching and they make some ghastly mistake or. They don't ask the right question.
1: And you're ready with a with a I just think, with oh, a ha- hand on the shoulder to say, "Yeah, we've all nearly done that." We've all nearly <laughs> done that. We're
2: just thinking, "Oh, no, for yeah. goodness sake, just ask that or don't, you know, don't do that. You know, say to Djokovic, "Did you have a test or something?" Yes, yeah. And don't just ramble on about something else. Yeah. And don't just go over the past was what we know about. Think of some new angle which hasn't been answered and then ask it with considerable force yes. if necessary. And if necessary, repeat it.
1: When those those very big things involving, you know, prime ministers coming and going, governments falling or not falling, uh, are are you? I I sort of sense there is a a feeling you you'd really like to be there in in amongst it. I'm I'm always
2: there. No, in my in my spirit, I'm always there. I'm often following it. The joy of. Of being sort of semi-retired as I am now is that all this stuff comes into you at home. I mean, yeah, you can follow every news conference, everything that's happened in the House of Commons. When I first went to the House of Commons, we had to write it all down, rush out and describe it. There were no broadcasting. Yeah, so that's a so you it's know, an absurd the,
1: thing to remember now that it yeah, wasn't possible. To, it wasn't
2: possible, and, yeah. and, and this endless news conferences and follow-ups, and being able to record it on your own machine and mm. play that back, and yeah. Or did they really say that? Well,
1: we've discussed one high point of your career, but what in general terms is the... If you ask a great question, what what are you aiming at? A question that embarrasses the politician or just releases some information that we didn't have or shows the story in a completely different light? What, what's the real aim?
2: Well, I'll try to give you one example, which is it's not a political one, but I was in Northern Ireland when they announced they weren't going to have the death penalty anymore for yeah. terrorists. Right. And I... Got into a car with somebody, roared off to Crumlin Road Jail uh, outside. There was a woman outside, and I rushed up to her with my tape recorder and I said, um, um, You know, uh, sorry, but uh, why are you here? And she said, My son is inside, and I now know that he won't die. And so I like, ah. <laughs> Right. So that interview, which I suppose went on for about no more than three or four minutes, I think but Covering the main points, yeah. You know, when did you hear? What about this? What did he do? And so, all the questions, nothing can be prepared, yeah. But I, I as I rushed back to Broadcasting House in Belfast, I thought, God, this is really quite something. It's a great moment, mm. you know, it's a great moment for her. Um, I've got it there. It's not me being horrible, it's not me being asked an awkward question. We've got something which is just. So sort of vital and so profound. Yes, and that—that—that's what—that's those are my the great moments for me. And if you say, "Oh, do people remember you about yeah. that?" No, no, no. does everyone say, "Do you remember that time when you?" Yeah. No one has ever, ever <laughs> said to me, "I heard the interview you gave." To the yeah. woman. no, no,
1: now, they don't remember the uh, great interviews. They, no. they, they tend to remember, you know, things have gone, gone wrong. Things yeah. go wrong. Yes. Nonetheless, we've got quite a a picture, I suppose, of you emerging, English churches, British canals, the Spitfire. Yes, that's good. You you are the most patriotic person so far.
2: There's a stone train going back to the quarries. So they'll be picking up stone and coming back here? That's right. So they're doing the job that we would have done on these old boats?
1: Absolutely, yeah. Your sixth wonder takes us at least out of Britain, and yes, it takes somewhere. us out of
2: Britain, and, and so it ought to, because a lot of my a lot of my best times have been spent abroad. Yeah, um, and of course I could have chosen the Taj Mahal, which I have seen twice. You could go on about all sorts. of things. Yes, um, but no, I've chosen the Maygray novels of Georges Simenon. Right. Okay. And there are seventy-five of them. Yeah, and. Uh, some people, I the reason why I've studied them, actually, and I mean studied them for 40 years, is to improve my French. I was oh. briefly the Paris correspondent of the BBC, very yep. briefly, and it's unfinished business. So even now, I am struggling. I never read them in English. Right. I always read them, in, but I, I do it on an iPad or a fancy machine. Yes. So whenever I want a translation, I press a button, uh, or you know, oh I know so you press a good up idea, comes yeah. a word up comes a phrase yes up, and I, so I'm not uh, you may say but hasn't my French improved over the years uh. <laughs> the answer is not very much well I'm I, but I'm already impressed I, I don't know why I hadn't reapplied really my
1: mind to this I kind of imagined you've been reading them in English but of course um, no, they're written no, no, in no. French and uh, of course you are not, not the sort of no, person no, that's no. going to I'm sure you read uh, War and Peace in Russian you as do well the, you do yeah.
2: difficult things is the
1: point yes. Yeah. You try and do difficult things. Right. But other than the learning of English, or the, uh, mm. the uh, other than the learning of French, or the topping up of your v- vocabulary and so forth, uh, what is it about uh, Maigret novels? Uh, he, he's a pretty well-known figure, I suppose. Um, um, I think he's Belgian, wasn't he, uh, George Simon, yes, but Be- set yes. in Paris. Set in Paris. Um, um, so he's... Well, a little bit like the French um, Sherlock Holmes has been sometimes competitive. But he yes. is a police officer. Yeah, no,
2: he's a police officer, a commissaire, but he's also much more interested really in, in the people than the outcome. I mean, he's he's meant to be there to solve crime, mm. but actually he's not. He's really trying to solve, you know, human conundrums and yes, and personalities and find out about how people... Really behave, mm. and that's the fascination of it. But what makes it more extraordinary is that is that he was such a rogue, Simonon. Mm. and he once admitted or admitted, bragged about having sex with ten thousand women. Ten thousand, yeah, ten thousand. How did he find time to write and, all these novels? Then? Well, I know, and you think how? what these novels are all about, and these Maigret novels are all about this very steadfast the yeah. relationship between Monsieur and. Madame Maigret, yeah. is is profound and deep and wonderful. Yes. And it's all jolly. Yeah. And while all this was going on, Simonot had these affairs, not affairs, paid for it, and um, his second wife was asked about this 10,000 figure. Yeah. And she said that was not the case. It was nearer 1,200. <laughs> <laughs> and so the whole sort of idea well, that, that Simonot himself is living he had a couple of dozen pseudonyms he wrote under but he's living in an extraordinary life where it's not write about yourself and write about your own feelings yeah. it's make up an elaborate system 75 novels maigret novels yes. where he you know wouldn't uh, he wouldn't have had sex with anybody apart from madame maigret on a yeah. good day
1: so um
2: so so you're attracted to that side of it as yeah. well? Yeah, the... so you've always got to know when was the story written? You know, what stage in his life was it? Um, so you need to know more background. But the key thing is to realise that, you know, he, he's living this complete, utter fantasy Yeah. Uh, in these novels, and... That gives them a sort of curious. Again, we're talking about are these one as the world, one as the world? No, they're one. They're outside the world, aren't they? They're outside sure, the world. Yeah. And and these Maigre novels, from that point of view, that the criterion fits precisely. That's why these are, in my view, personally. Yeah. These are a wonder of the world. Well, what I was going to ask you.
1: Maybe this isn't a relevant question, but because uh, I think I
2: understand what you're saying about
1: Georges Simenon and and Maigret, but uh, they are crime novels, and there are a lot of crime authors. So, do yes. you do you read either the old ones like Conan Doyle or Agatha Christie, or, or you know more up to date people of which there you know it's Har- Harlan Coburn, Ian Rankin, Val McDermott, Chris Brookmyre, Patricia Cornwell? I'm just I'm just rattling off the. The authors yeah. like that who I've interviewed in the last few months. Well, so. I know. <laughs> if I
2: was interviewing them, I certainly would read them. Yes. Um, no, I tend not to. But then it's part of this obsession with uh, reading this thing in French and educating me. Yeah. You see, it's 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 that's complicated. It's, yes. It's, I, I tend to read. I have to admit, nonfiction. Like yes. Most of the books I read. Right. Are books on history, books sometimes on music, but they're not. they're, they're not. Not, I don't read that many novels. I yeah. read some novels, um, but
1: Robert if it was Harris, just French, you were topping up your knowledge of, you could move on to other French novelists and yeah. other. French, I don't yeah. know how many other well, you know crime novelists
2: there are. I'm sure there must be plenty published yeah, in, in um, France. There's there's a man called Michel Houellebecq, who is yeah. a famous sort of uh, French writer, and I'm just at the moment reading his latest novel. Yeah. So, uh, but again, I'm reading it in French with difficulty.
1: All right. Well, we've got to, we've got to hurry now because we've got one sure. more, the
2: final uh, wonder of the
1: world, uh, according uh, to John Sargent. Uh, yeah. So what is your seventh wonder? Well, it's wonder? the
2: Treasures of Tutankhamun. Now, you can yeah. call it King Tut or anything you like, but we all know. We know that death mask. Yes. And it is small in real life. I've seen it several times. Yeah. Um, I first went to the Cairo Museum when I was three, mm. and I said, family story, I Want Dat Labbit, looking at an alabaster elk from The Trace of Tutankhamun. Um, I went when I was older. And, <laughs> and actually several times. And the last time I went, I was doing making a film actually in Luxor um, and also in Cairo and with Dan Snow. Mm. And um, all the other people on the team had seen The treasures because it was largely about that. Yeah, for some reason I wasn't in those scenes. I wonder why that was. Anyway, um, good old Dan. Uh, and you got a trip out of it? Uh, no, 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 down. no. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm not complaining about it. It's wonderful. But I just, <laughs> I, know, I, I, you're said, saying. I said to the producer, I said, yeah. look, I'd like to just go and see the treasures. And they said, well, no, the authorities are very worried about security because people have been killed recently, tourists, and if you were killed, this would not go down very well. Um, yeah. So uh, you'll have to go in an unmarked car. And you'll have to say to the you have to have one driver, not one driver there and one driver back, but one person with you. Yes, and they can drop you off at the Cairo Museum, and you can then come back to the hotel, which happens to be near the pyramids, Um, not on the list for some reason. But there we are. Um, So I went there, and it was just so glorious because there's just dust everywhere, Mm. and they're about to move the they were about and still are. Uh, in the process of setting up the new museum near the pyramids. Mm. So, this was, you know, it was very much the, the sort of swan song of the Cairo Museum yeah. on the third floor. And I knew all, all, everything about it, With hardly anyone there. I just thought, oh, how terrific. Just, it again, out of this world, yeah. not part of the world that we know of, of you know, Greek and Roman and yeah. Renaissance and all this stuff. No, no, it's a completely, utterly different world of 1500, uh, 1400. BC and it is just so stunning and the idea of Carter who I then had to play in the film so I was on a donkey at one stage being (laughs) Howard Carter to get in the mood as I explained (laughs) And the idea that he would peer in and see this Mm. 5,000 objects
1: well, other than yeah. seeing this, these particular objects of this particular, but the did it give you a wider interest in sort of Egyptology because it's a, a long period of time. Yeah, it is a long civilization. Time. Yeah, like hundreds,
2: thousands of years. I know, but there comes a point when I think I better just get back to and... <laughs> <laughs> I can't do everything. Let's <laughs> spread on a few things that I know I will enjoy. So, and or British politics, you know, there are some things that are coming at me all the time. Yes, I'm sure. The Treasure of Tutankhamun is a wonder. It's out of this world, so on. Um, but I can't devote my t- I can't devote too much time to that. I'll never be an expert. I'm got I'm too old. Well, I, I you say that, but you could spend
1: your time poring over the documents or reading a couple of books. I'm sure you'd mug up very
2: quickly. I would for a programme, if you're suggesting, uh, Clive, (laughs) that I could work with you on a programme about the treasure of Tutankhamun, you're on.
1: There's a suspicion that all your wonders have been either uh, commemorating great uh, TV series or perhaps trailing your coat uh, suggesting uh, another one. I can't can't (laughs) know how you
2: could conceivably have that view, Clive. There must be something about you, something slightly sort of sinister, I think, Slightly underhand, <laughs> to even suggest something like that. I think I'm
1: trying to match up to your skills as an interviewer. Look, John Sargent, thank you very much for, for joining me on this podcast to select your seven wonders. I have to choose the wonder of wonders from your list of seven, the one which struck me as particularly wonderful, as you described it in this podcast. And they're all uh, wonderful in their own way. I wonder if I should go back to the BBC, though, for your very beginning one, um, and just to make make it Clear in my mind, what aspects of the BBC you are particularly describing as wonderful? Is it the whole package? Because you mentioned a couple of times the management uh, uh, and its <laughs> problems and the and the structures. Oh, yeah. uh, so, uh, are we are we do we have to endorse the management of the BBC uh, to make this the wonder of wonders? No, I mean the thing is, let's take a
2: great example of Greek sculpture, right? Mm. The Venus de Milo. How many arms has she got? Well, <laughs> So we're not talking perfection here. <laughs> <laughs> the BBC is riddled with all sorts of problems and difficulties and things that make you cross. And if you work in it, yeah. probably even more cross about all sorts of silly things. But the overall effect, despite everything, yes, that is what makes it so magnificent. And that's what again makes it out of this world. It's not normal. All right. Well, on the basis that, as far as I can tell,
1: um, apart from your very early life, everything, all the other wonders seem to come from working for the BBC or other broadcasters. I think the wonder of wonders that, uh, and uh, anyway, I might have self-interest in this. Also, I'll put the BBC as uh, the wonder of wonders from your seven wonders. Thank you, John Sergeant, for sharing your wonders with me. Mm-hmm.
0: My Seven Wonders with Clive Anderson is a stack production in association with Alaska TV and powered by the Acast Creator Network.